I love that. I love reading this story. Um, I would challenge you when you get home at some time today or this next week that you would read all the Gospels when it comes to this account because, like always, Mark is missing some key points that if you, you just read it and it's like, oh, there's a few things that happen that you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, there's a few clues in here that are really... There's one specifically, and you'll, you'll know which one once as I read it. It's just a little, it's not a little, it's very odd that it's just sitting there. It's part of the reason why I believe the Bible to be true. You don't just make up part, a little clue that happens during this time and just put it in there randomly. So we're in Mark 14 today. Did that surprise you guys that we're in the book of Mark? We're, we're in the nitty gritty of it. I mean, we are towards the end of Mark 14, starting next week, Mark 15. And so how many chapters in Mark? There's 16. So you are... You're getting there. You're getting to the end. A lot happens between now and then. And so I, re- I want you to remember that right now as we're reading in the story, it's Thursday night, but Sunday's coming, right? Sunday, a little historical event happened that changed everything. Jesus was raised from the dead. And uh, amen, right? Some of us are excited. It's like all of us need to go, because if it wasn't, like I want to be like Apostle Paul. He goes, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then I'm just interpreting for him. We're just wasting our time. That's what he basically says. But Jesus did raise, he was risen from the dead. And that means that all of us, there's, there's hope for all of us and we can be in right relationship. And so Thursday, we've been in the story for a few weeks. This meal has taken us three weeks. Okay. And, uh, so we're at the tail end of it and he's going into the next portion of this. He has been observing Passover with his disciples in the upper room. We call it the Lord's Supper communion. We call it the Last Supper. Um, but in the middle of the meal, things get very awkward. Okay, I want you to think about that. We've been talking about two individuals specifically, Jesus, obviously, and Judas Iscariot. Judas, there's two Judases. I like what you sent me the other day about oftentimes you'll see something will say Judas, not Iscariot. I would put that in my, in my writing too, because I don't want to be known as the Judas Iscariot, Judas, not Iscariot. Um, there's two Judases, which it must be a common name, I'm, I'm sure, but there's Judas Iscariot and Jesus, and they've, they've been interacting with each other. And Jesus, in the middle of eating, he's got the bread. He's going, and he goes, I'm troubled in spirit. One of you guys is going to betray me. And he knew what that was going to be. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. It gave the disciples some time to really evaluate their own heart. We all need that. I need that, where I just stop the activity of the world. There was two instances the last couple of days that, I'm an introvert, and there was a lot of people. I went to the football game. There was a lot of people there, you know. That's a lot of people. Then we went to barbecue days, and there was a crowd. And uh, um, I, I, I like my intro. I like being an introvert. And so, in this instance, Jesus is—he's with the crowd. He's with the disciples. The crowd's coming. But then, in a moment, I want you to little preview. Jesus, in a moment, is going to be utterly alone with him and his father. And so last week we said that Jesus had a moment with Judas and he dipped the bread in the bowl together and it was that one. Judas goes, Judas Iscariot says, this is it. Now John's gospel is interesting. John's gospel adds a detail that Mark doesn't, of course. One of them is that at that moment when he realizes that he's everybody sees who it is, Judas Iscariot gets up from the meal and leaves. This, the, whole, the, the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, the, Satan himself, different, to, totally different spirit, 
Satan enters into Judas's body, and he's, he's demon-possessed, if you want to call it that, and then he leaves, and he's going to find the crowd. There's a crowd of people who are gathering to get ready to arrest Jesus. That's where Judas is going. Then Jesus has an interaction with his, the rest of his disciples, and he talks about communion. He talks about blood. He talks about the, the, the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. The blood is the wine. And so it's very important to look at communion as very vital to your life because it helps us to remember what it's all about. What is, how is a person saved? Through the blood of Christ and the fact that he broke his body, shed his blood. Why? Because according to the Bible, that's the only way to forgive sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you have a question about that, why is that possible? You can ask God that when you get to heaven. You don't ask me because I have no idea. Okay, why couldn't just God go, eh? But I don't believe he could do that. Something has to die. Something has to take your spot. And Jesus, on the cross, took your place so that you never, ever, ever have to deal with the judgment of God. You have to say, Lord, it's by your mercy. It's by your grace. It's by your love and your kindness that I can even say, Lord, here I stand in front of you, not shaking like a leaf, but because you love me in relationship. You want me to be with you in relationship. That's huge. So that's where it goes. And then after the meal, he took his disciples up to Mount of Olives. And right at the beginning of Mount of Olives, there is a garden, Garden of Gethsemane. We're not going to read that portion of scripture. You'll want to read it on your own time because... It's one of those places I want to visit. I want to visit. You could actually go to the Garden of Gethsemane and see. I would love to pray. I would love to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane to see where Jesus was. What I like about that story, there, there's this, maybe you don't get encouraged with that story. My encouragement is that Jesus is praying. He says to his disciples, please pray with me and please pray for me. Because what is it? This is a very hard concept for some people to grasp that Jesus is struggling Okay, we serve a God. God the Son is a God who, um, he's all one God. Okay, I won't get into that today. But God the Son is someone that can totally relate to your situation. Because he's 100% God. He's 100% human. If you're here and you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you just, your mind just went, you have no, you're like, and, and welcome to the club. God is very, very mysterious. Someday, I believe that we might, at some point in the history, maybe in the future sometime, we will somewhat understand that. But the reality is Jesus was going to the Garden of Gethsemane very much struggling. How do I know that? Because he's so anxious. If you've ever dealt with anxiety, some people, they have a hard time saying that. Jesus had anxiety. You better believe it. How could you go to the cross? He went there willingly, but at the same time, he had anxiety. How many of us would have a little bit of anxiety if you knew they knew what the cross meant. They knew that punishment. It was, it was, it was common. Any common criminal would be thrown onto the Roman cross. That was very common. So he knew what it meant because it meant not only was God going to turn his back on Jesus because he's full of humanity's sin, but he's going to have to deal with the pain. Because you don't die of blood loss. You die because your lungs collapse, all the weight. So you can't breathe. He has to lift himself up to be able to breathe, and after a while, you can't do that. So it's very, 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 very painful, and that's what Jesus did for us. So before he gets there, 
He's full of anxiety. And this is where, to me, it's where it's encouraging. He says to his disciples, pray for me. Pray with me. Now, you know the story. What happens to the disciples? Okay. How many of us have ever fallen asleep during prayer? Some of us is a holy. We don't even want to admit that. I've never done that, Pastor. When we go to prayer meetings or when you went to church, you fall asleep. Okay. No, 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 no. I can see everything up here. Okay. But because in college, we were supposed to, we were learning if someone falls asleep, you go right next to them and preach. That's how it usually works. So, but the reality is they fell asleep and that tells me, wow. Okay. Maybe I'm just as human as the disciples and God used every single one of them, right? God used every single one of them, and yet they're falling asleep during prayer. And then he's praying, he's overwhelmed with anxiety so much he sweats drips of blood, which I have in the past studied that. It's a very, 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 very rare thing, but it's not impossible that someone could be so anxious, so So if you deal with anxiety, I'm guessing you've never dealt with that much anxiety. Because if you never sweat drops of blood, if you're bleeding through your pores where you sweat, it's because he's so anxious. In fact, he's so anxious. He says, Father, if this cup may pass from me, let it pass. If there's any other way, but not my will be done, but thy will be done. See, that tells me to me, sometimes the will of God is very difficult. And sometimes as Christians, we're so phony. Right? Have you ever met a phony Christian? Right. What I mean by that is, is they don't want to admit that the will of God in their life is, is, is hard. It's not what they would choose if they were, if had their choice. Sometimes you just have to take one step in front of the other and say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Sometimes we're so phony and go, ah, this is such a great thing to do. No. Sometimes God calls you to do things that get out of your comfort zone. You better believe that Jesus is out of his comfort zone. If I knew what was going to happen to me, I for sure would have done what he did. He said, Lord, Father, if there's any possible way to let this cup pass from me and let some other cup show up that's easier, let it be so. But not my will be done. Yours be done. And then he goes back to his disciples. The interesting thing is, there's a very interesting conversation right before Judas shows up. He basically says, since you guys can't fall asleep, since you guys can't stay awake, go ahead and have your rest. Go ahead and fall asleep. You might as well rest now because you're going to need it. But right in the middle of saying that, I mean, in mid-sentence, he looks ahead. And who does he see? Judas. Who does he see behind him? The mob. Everybody say the mob. Okay, you're not going to want to forget the mob, the crowd. These are non-believers. They don't believe in Jesus. Then you got Judas Iscariot, who at best is a superficial Christian. And then you have the disciples who, while they will abandon things for a while, I believe with all my heart that they're fully devoted followers of Christ. Why? Because they actually, they actually still keep going. Even Peter, who denies Christ three times, he realizes the love of God so much that he has to go to Jesus when they're on the, when he's on the boat. And, um, so there's three types of people I want, I'm going to talk about today in just a moment. But let's go to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43, because that's where we pick up the story is Jesus is talking to his disciples about them. Hey, you can take a nap. You're going to need it. But and he goes, I see Judas right in the middle of talking. So verse 43 says, and immediately, even as Jesus was saying this, Judas, 
one of the 12 disciples. Now pause. This is the very last time that's going to mention Judas as one of the 12 disciples. You will notice that throughout the Gospel of Mark, every time Judas is mentioned, it will say Judas, one of the disciples. The very key. What it, it's, it's to remind you who he is. He's a friend of Christ. He is a guy who abandoned everything to follow Jesus. Most Christians, they have a hard time abandoning everything. They'll abandon some of it, but they'll hold on to certain things. This is the very last time that it says it. The next time that it says Judas Iscariot, in just a moment, it's going to mention a different word. Okay, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by who? The leading priests. Okay, these, these leading priests and teachers of religious law, they have been trying to get Jesus since chapter 2. Okay, I had to look back to where it began. Chapter 2 is where they started their plan to murder Jesus. That's, that's three years, almost three years of his life. They've been trying to grab Jesus. The teachers of religious law and the elders. The traitor, everybody say traitor. Listen, this is on purpose. Mark is saying, this is who he is. Okay, this is who he was. This is who he could have been for the rest of his life. But now, this is what he's chosen. He is chosen to be a traitor. So now he's not Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Not, not Judas, the follower of Christ. But now he's the traitor, Judas. And I have to, if it makes me kind of sad and very upset to see that, because then I think of Judas oftentimes as a, a villain. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to collect comic books. And in comic books, or in those movies, the Marvel movies, there's always a villain, right? Superman has a villain. Batman has a villain. Spider-Man has a villain. They all do. Judas, to me, there's Jesus. He's good. And then there's the opposite. Not Satan. Satan, yes, but humanly, it's Judas Iscariot. He's the villain. And I forget that he's human. I forget that he is created the image of God. I forget that he followed Christ. I forgot that he abandoned everything to follow Christ. And then all of a sudden, before Satan entered his life, by the way, I said that two weeks ago, he chose this path. He chose this path. Judas, the traitor, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you'll take him away under guard. As soon as he, they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi. Okay, that's huge. you like, Rabbi, teacher? Why not Lord? No, this was the guy he followed for a long time. Part of the reason why I think he was, at best, he was a half-hearted Christian believer in God. He was superficial, wishy-washy. Okay, but it's very common to call him rabbi because he was their leader. He was their teacher. He was their, he was their master. What he said goes. And he was saying at the very end, rabbi. But then he gave him the kiss. Now, I want to pause right here because this is a very sad moment in history. Now, was it predicted in the Old Testament? Of course. So it had, should have, it was going to happen. Okay. But it's still sad for Judas because Jesus earlier had said it's better if you hadn't been born. Now, I'm not going to wrestle the fact if he could have repented or not or if he goes to heaven or not. I'm not going to get into that. Some of us are pretty strong in our one opinion or the other when it comes to it. I'm not going to get into it. I don't know. Okay? But 
I do know that he followed Christ for three years. So there's no way that he hated Jesus. There's no way that he, he loved Jesus. Jesus was his master. Jesus was his friend. And reverse it, who was Judas to Jesus? Jesus, Judas was a follower of him. Judas was a guy who abandoned everything to follow Jesus. That's someone who I would think if you abandoned your past and you follow Jesus, that's someone that, who worships Jesus. You don't just worship with song. You worship Jesus by abandoning your past and abandoning the things that hold you back and following him. And that's what Judas did. And what's, inter- what's, what's very sad is the very signal that he used, the kiss. Now, I, I'm recording this. I'm, I'm recording A lot of people from a different country watch this, by the way. India was a big, for some reason, I, it shows me who watches from where. So hi if you're from India. But in my country, in America, we don't greet each other with a holy kiss, right? If someone did that, you'd be like, get away from me. We've been told not to do that. We've been told not to do that at all. Um, maybe for good reason, but I'll throw that. But in that culture, you very much would greet each other with a holy kiss. In fact, the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. That's the uh, most um, unobserved commandment of God in the New Testament. Greet each other with a holy kiss. No, thank you. We'll wave, right? Give each other a hug. But he gave him the kiss. That was a very common thing between friends, to show each other a kiss. So for one last time, he wanted to kiss his friend, but he turned it towards a negative thing. Now, the kiss represents something that's negative. See, I believe that Judas Iscariot was not only betraying Jesus, but he's betraying his good friends, his disciples. Because his fellow disciples are going, hey, we abandoned our same life that you did, and we're following Jesus, and now you're throwing him away? You're going to throw him away. That's We were friends with you. We spent time with you. You're the money guy. You know, if we, if we make any money, we give it to you, and you count, you, you're, you're the offering guy. Ron, you're not Judas Iscariot. I'm just saying you're the offering guy, okay? You, you know, here, make sure everything's accounted for Judas, right? And he's like, one for me, one, you know, but he was the guy. And now you're choosing just to abandon it all? So I'm sure that they were very upset. See, Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. Don't, do not think of him as an, a villain, Okay, I know we use it as a villain that this person was a Judas in my life. Every one of us could identify one person who is like a Judas in, a, in our life, that they were close to us, but they turned their back on us. Could be a friend, could be a coworker, could be a boss, could be a parent, it could be a teacher when we were a kid, it could be a coach, it could be anybody. Okay, but they were a Judas. So don't think of him as a villain. Think of him as a human be a fellow human being that was created in the image of God who had potential, who had a future, but who threw it, threw it away. But he betrayed Jesus. Now, now, I want to pause for a moment because some of us have been betrayed. We know what that feels like. You've been hurt by a supposed good friend. You've been betrayed by a parent when you're a kid. You were betrayed by a close friend or a family member or an uncle or maybe a former spouse. You were betrayed by them. Or a relationship. Maybe you were dating someone and that was the person that was going to be for who you are and they betrayed you. Now, why do I say that? Because some of us have to look back years when we were betrayed. Like I say a lot in this church, there are times when we get hurt that we hold on to that hurt for 30, 40, 50, 60, our entire lives. 
And the reason why I hold on to it is because it, it's, it's attached to us. If we don't stand up for, for God and we don't stand up against that hurt and pain, it's always going to rule us. Believe me, I know. But when you let that pain go, it's not up to you because you can't do it on your own. When you allow the Holy Spirit to heal you of your past hurt and betrayal, you can move forward. We've seen it. I've seen it. It's been in my life too. I can say that I am, I am more at peace with my past. I'm, I have joy in the Lord more now than ever because I continually ask God, keep me healed of this pain. Because what happens with, what happens when you're healed oftentimes, especially with emotional baggage, that stuff tends to creep back in slowly. You know, you, you pull weeds in the yard or wherever. And what do you see in like less than 24 hours? A little thing of green, just picking out. It's so small, you can't even pick the thing out, right? That's exactly what hurt does when you say, Lord, I forgive this person. It's, it's, it's down there somewhere still. And you have to constantly, and that's exactly what we need to do if we've been betrayed. If you're hurt, you're angry, if you're bitter, if you're miserable, and let me, no offense, but if you're miserable to be around, which some of us have been that in the sense where we're so hurt that you can, you, people can read it a mile away. That person is so hurt. Why? It's the cliche, hurt people, hurt people. Okay? And so if you've been betrayed, I want you to know this. Number one, Jesus knows exactly how you feel with that. And number two, he wants to lead you through a process to be healed so that you can live your life that God wants you to live and that you can respond in a Christ-like way. Do we always respond in a Christ-like way in our, in our life? Uh, no. No. We don't. And the reality is, are we supposed to respond in a Christ-like way? You better believe it. Is it impossible by yourself? Yes. How do you do it? Be very connected with the Holy Spirit and know that the author of your healing, the author of your of your wholeness is not just being a better person or changing your ways. That's not the way, okay? It's being connected with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. But for some reason, Judas decides, I'm going to betray Jesus. See, you don't have to be stuck in the feeling of betrayal for the rest of your life. So Judas gives Jesus a kiss. Let's see the results. Verse 46. Then the others, this is the, this is the mob. Everybody say mob. The mob represents the crowd, which it represents the non-believers. They do not believe that Jesus is who he says he was. Okay? The others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men, which I love how Mark, you, I just thought of this. Do you remember at the very beginning of this series, week one, like two years ago? When, uh, not quite two years ago, but who is the guy who supposedly, who most people believe that's telling Mark the story? Peter. Remember that? So do you guys know who the guy is who cut the guy's ear off? Peter. Okay, why in the world would, yeah, yeah, Peter's like, hey, Mark, just some guy. Just some guy, you know? I mean, I, I find it very funny, and I find it uh, that, it to me, it kind of, the, it's probably Peter <laughs> that's, that's actually uh, telling uh, Mark this because I'm not going to admit that. Hey, yeah, remember that time I cut a guy's ear off? Yeah, that was pretty bad. When Jesus, when Jesus, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll defend him for a minute, for a second, for a second. 
Peter was the only one that stood up for Jesus at that time, right? To him, he's like, hey, I'm defending Jesus. So, I mean, okay, let me say that with a side note. Don't cut people's ears off. But he was the only one that defended Jesus, but he for sure doesn't want to tell Mark that it was him. That's why he's not in there. But it says, he says, you know, one of the men with Jesus, could have been anybody, not me, Peter, uh, with Jesus, he pulled out his sword and he struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Doesn't even say that Jesus heals him, which we know he did. He, he grabs the ear somewhere. You know, it's like Evander Holyfield with Mike Tyson. They had to go find the ear later. If you didn't know, if you don't know boxing, you don't know the reference. He bit his ear off. But anyway, Jesus goes, heals him, you know. Um, I like that part of the story that's not in here. But Jesus asked the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day. We know why they didn't arrest him there. They don't want to start a riot. They want to do it in secret. They want to do it in the dark. And they did that exact same thing right there. But these things are happening. You're the reason why you're arresting me. The reason that I've been betrayed is happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Verse 50, we read this last week. Remember this verse? Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. When Jesus needed them the most, what could they have done? I don't know. Could they have done something? No. Um, in fact, if they tried to do anything, Jesus would have said, don't. Because we know that Jesus, he had to die. But when you're going through times, uh, trials, I mean, once in a while you want to be alone. True, true. But there are times that you want to know that there are people that are still sticking by your side, even though they can't change anything. Right? You know that while everyone else is abandoning you, that there's someone there that will never abandon you in your life. You got to have friends like that. You got to have brothers and sisters in Christ like that, that no matter what happens, they will stick by you through thick and thin. But for Jesus, at least at this moment, all gone. <laughs> this is the last, I love this. One, we've, we've read this verse before, and I find it funny. One young man, doesn't say the name, can't prove who it is, Mark. Um, most, I don't know how they know it, but most people think this young man is Mark, the writer who puts himself in the story. There's no other explanation to why this story is in the, in the, in the, I mean, it's just random. In fact, so random. Look, Jesus arrested. Let it be. Let the story be. But no, one young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. No pants. Apparently no underwear. Weird. Okay. When the mob tried to grab this young man, he slipped out of his shirt and he ran away naked. Let me just throw it. This is, this has nothing to do with my sermon because this has nothing to do with what's going on. And in other words, I mean, maybe you could say it was very chaotic, but a, this young man, some scholars, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they prove it. Say that it's Mark putting himself in the story. I, that would be so awesome if it really was because he put himself in the story. Okay. But, um, I just, I don't know what to think of it. I just, I think, I find it humorous. I'll leave it at that. It's funny. To me, that helps prove that the story is legit. Because why put that even there in the first place if it's, if it's fake? Why do it? You don't do that. You don't put random stuff like that unless it actually happened. So, this is a turning point in Jesus' life and for the story. 
for 14 chapters, for three years, the disciples have been all in with Jesus. They've been all in, sold out, if you will. I've abandoned my past. Sorry, the fishermen, they went, I'm, I'm, I'm abandoning my dad. I'm abandoning the business. This is my future, but not anymore. Jesus, he's my future. They abandoned, they abandoned ship, if you will, to go right with Jesus. For three years, they've been all in. But when the going got tough, they abandoned ship with Jesus. Peter, who we know denies Christ three times, went back to fishing. We've, we've, we have, we've talked about that a zillion times over the years in this church. Because he did what he, he went back to his past because he didn't know what else to do. But when the going got tough, the sheep scattered. Jesus was the great shepherd. And when everything got hard for them, guess what? They're banning the shepherd. Because it is so easy to follow the crowd. It is so easy to follow the, the mob. It is so easy when the going gets tough to say, Lord, I really want this to work out, but I just can't do it. You're asking a little bit too much of me. And if that's the case, and you are this close, I want to give you a warning. If you're this close to jumping ship with God, this is a warning for you to just stop for a moment and reconsider. If you're like most people who go, there's no way on earth I'll ever do that. The disciples said that. I've had people in my life who have left Jesus and you want to go, what just happened? So none of us are immune to this. All of us wish, wish that we could say, oh, no, 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 no. Even if everybody in this church denies you, I am going to follow you. Peter said that. Peter said that. But he never, he never followed through with it. When the going got tough, he, he abandoned ship. He threw the white flag out anyway. I'm done. I'm done. See, if you're a Christian, some Christians, they'll say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you up to a certain point. You don't say this out loud. But you live this way. Sometimes I live this way. Lord, I will follow you up to a certain point, but beyond that point, too difficult. I can't give up that. I can't give up this. I can't do, I have this situation. I cannot give that up even for you. But we've been saying this for like a month now. Jesus is worth it all. Jesus is valuable. He's so valuable that that everything else in our life, it, it is so minuscule compared to Jesus. In fact, I know that because when you get to heaven, Jesus is so valuable that what are the streets in heaven paved with? Gold. The thing that we value so much you don't value anymore. You put your dirty feet on it. Your feet won't be dirty in heaven, but go with me here. You can wipe your feet on the, on the gold carpet because it's not worth anything in heaven because who's worth the most? God Almighty is worth infinitely more than all that. So is he worth going all in with, with him? Or is he worth eh, superficial Christianity? Or is he worth just throwing away at all? Just think about it for just a moment. Because at this moment in the story, there are very few people, very few people who have stayed with Jesus. The majority of them have went into hiding. You know that because in the story, they're going in the, they're going in the upper room hiding 
because I guess they rented the place for by the hour and they still have a few hours to go. So they're closing the door and they're just like, they don't want to go out there because they're afraid of the mob. The mob is still out there. The mob is growing. The mob is, and they're scared to death. They're scared to death. See, where do you find yourself in the story? When life gets hard, and maybe no one told you this, but I believe that most of us in this room or you're online, you're watching this, you know that life can get hard, even and maybe especially for Christians. Because some Christians have been lied to and say, if you really truly believe, things will just go smooth sailing. You'll go on this sail, you go on this boat and you're just sailing the beautiful seas, no waves, the perfect amount of wind that you're going straight. And the reality is that is not true. Ask Job that, who was all in for God, who still followed God after he lost everything outside of his wife. And I go, oh, I don't really feel it today, Lord. I don't want to do this. And he's like, so you're having a rough day and you don't want to do my will. Yeah. Does God deserve all in or does he just... So where do you find your... There, there's many people representing the story. There's the mob. There's Judas Iscariot. And then there's the disciples who... The, 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 go with me here because they do abandon him for a little bit. Okay? Only to come back to him and, and die for Jesus. Right? Can we all admit that these disciples, they all die for their faith in Christ? So it's not their beginning of their story. It's their end of their story. But there's the mob, the crowd... There's Judas, and then there's the disciples. So I believe God has a word for all people when it comes to this message. If you're online, the first person is the word for non-Christians. You don't buy into this. I look around here and I go, I, I think that you believe, right? But I can't, no one can assume that. I can't see your heart. There's a lot of people who are phony Christians, and I'm not trying to throw any on the bus. I've been there, done that, where it's just the facade. It's an act. And you don't really believe. When the going gets tough, you're, you're done. So the word for non-Christians, I want to read the first little bit here in verse 43. And immediately after Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd. Everybody say crowd. Another word for that is mob. There's a mob. The crowd of our mob of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and the elders Okay, so the very first group of people is this mob, this crowd. And Mark uses some the word crowd, which is interesting because you think, oh, it's just some random people that were angry in the, in, in the city. And the teachers of religious law said, oh, you look angry enough. Here, grab this club. Grab this, grab this sword. Here, there you go. Go get that guy that's over here. Follow Judas. But it's not just some ordinary group of people. These aren't just ordinary. This is actually a joint military operation. The Jews and the Romans who arrested Jesus, who crucified Jesus. There's a mixture of two Jewish people who follow after God. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you realize that the Jewish nation in the Old Testament fickle. They're roller coaster. Not sometimes we are too. All in, all out. All in. I love you, Lord. Oh, things are hard. I'm going over here now. That's how the, that is the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Obedient, disobedient. All in, all out. So 
This is the first crowd. They're actually a joint military operation who were hired in case the mob happens, which it does happen. It gets worse and worse and worse as the night goes on. But they do this, why? Because throughout the book of Mark, you will see a theme. And the theme is this. It's, a, it's an underlying theme that you might miss. But one of the themes is we don't like Jesus because he has way too much influence and power, so we need to somehow grab him. We need to get him. We don't like how he's acting like he's God. We're, we're going to, well, we can get him on blasphemy. In fact, the very first time, it won't be on the screen, it says early as Mark 2, 6, because over time, things start to boil. And then finally, at this moment here, it was not only boiling, it burst. But over time, it was, it was boiling a little bit. Mark 2, 6, they had some concerns regarding Jesus using blasphemy because he forgave sins. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Because Jesus forgave someone's sin. So that's the very first little instance where they're like, hmm. Because blasphemy, what happens in the Old Testament when you blasphemous against God? You're dead. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay? Mark 2.16, which I love this. These same people were concerned by Jesus' associates. Who is associates? Tax collectors and sinners. Or according to the New Testament translation, New, New Living Translation, it is scum. Why do your disciples hang out with such scum? These are, these are people who God has died for and they're calling them scum. I don't know if you've ever done that when you're at a church service and someone comes in off the street or someone that's not a Christian and they smell, they stink. They, 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 I mean, there's this small part of religious people that go, I'm glad you're here, but man, they're making me a little nervous. Don't shake anything up. Don't make me nervous. Don't make me uncomfortable. Don't rock the boat. And that's, Exactly what, why does your, why do they, why does your teacher, why does he hang out with such scum? And then, Mark chapter 3 verse 6 is the very first time that they're plotting to kill Jesus. Look at this. From chapter 3 on, it says, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. So from chapter 3 all the way to now where we're reading in chapter 14, they have been planning to kill Jesus. They just don't know how to get to him. They just don't know how it works. And so Jesus doesn't really help the situation because the Tuesday before Passover, he goes to the temple for the first time and he sees that the temple is not a house of prayer. It's a den of thieves. So he overturns tables. He releases the animals. He takes the money and throws the money and the money changers. And they're like, hey, you're not allowed to do that. So at that moment, he just signed his death warrant. He is done for. They just have to get to him. And then, I mean, look at, well, let's look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, I believe it is, verse 18. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, overturned tables, they began planning how to kill him. Again, the boiling point is getting to the top. And it's ready to burst. But right now, they're just like, what are we supposed to do? Jesus has had too much influence. He's had too much power. They wanted the power. See, religious people, they want the power. They want the influence. Pastors are really bad about that. Like, we get a little nervous if someone else has the influence over the people. Wait, wait, wait. That's my people. 
Those are my congregation. The, wait, I'm supposed to be the one preaching. I'm the one supposed to be Mr. Guru about the Bible. And so it's so easy to have power and desire power and demand power. And these teachers of religious law, they wanted all the glory. They wanted all the acclamation. They wanted all the awards, but they refused to actually acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. So they said, you know what? We need to kill him. We need to kill him. They have to stop him. In fact, chapter 14 opens this way. It was now two days before the Passover and Festival of Unleavened Bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. So now, at the very end of chapter 14, the boiling point has boiled over. They're not messing around now. And the dream came true happened when Judas, one of his own, came to them and said, I know where he's at. He's going to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane because we always go to the Mount of Olives. When you're leaving Jerusalem, by the way, and if he wants to go to his, quote, headquarters, he has to go through the Mount of Olives to get there. So Judas knew exactly where he was going after this, this dinner. So he goes, I know where he's at. And so they just, yes. We've got it. Here, have 30 silver coins. It's worth it. We raised up some money. Here you go. Give us him. See, when Judas came to them, now they could actually arrest Jesus. See, why were they so hostile towards Jesus? Someone that offered you hope and peace and joy and God's love and forgiveness, why in the world are they so against him? Well, we talked about power, but there's another reason why. It's because these people refuse to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And there are people today, if you're here, you're watching online, for some reason you're watching this and you're not believing. I've been there. There's been times where I've been to a church service before I believed. I didn't buy into it. It was weird when I went to church for the first time. And the only reason I went there, make my parents happy. Well, I didn't have a choice. I mean, they, they would have said, you would need to walk we went to church in a different city. So that's a long walk. But they wouldn't let me walk. They said, you're sitting your behind right in that pew. And I'm glad they did. I really am. But I didn't believe. I didn't buy into all the stuff that they talked about. But if you're here and you do not believe, here it is. Here's my word to you. Jesus claimed to be more than a religious guru that knew everything. Jesus was more than a first century teacher. He was more than a rabbi. He was more than a healer. Because if you read the Bible, and even especially if you read like Josephus and that kind of thing, there were people all the time that were healers. There were. Demons can heal. They mask themselves as like spirits of light, but there really are demons who can pretend to do everything that God can do. So it's not even about the healing. He's more than that. If Jesus is just a means to an end, we have problems. Who's Jesus? Who did he say he was? He said he was God Almighty. Me, I and the Father are one. If I mean, if you were Jewish, your mind was blown. Like, what? Are you... You and the Father, Almighty God, are one. You are God. 
That's who Jesus claimed to be. Before Abraham was, I am. That's who he said he was. And what I want to say for you, if you refuse to believe that God is who he said he was, Jesus will remain irrelevant to you. There will be no power. There will be nothing in your life. You'll be like, well, he's just one of those guys. Because most people believe that Jesus did, in fact, exist. There's only a select few people who don't, who are not being historically accurate. They, they, they say, oh, Jesus just made up. They say that Jesus, he actually, his story came from a different story. But if you're human and you realize that there's a history, there's history that there was this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who came around the turn of what we would call uh, 1 BC, 1 AD, something like that. Okay? I mean, the way that we do our calendar is based on what? Like 2023 BC, what? Or like AD, you're of our Lord. But if you go back in time, well, they were around 2000 BC, before what? Christ. So something happened at the beginning of this era, okay? But if you say, eh, I don't want to give Jesus a shot, he'll remain irrelevant to you. He'll remain just as, ah, whatever. But if you give Jesus an ounce of your life, if you give him an inch of your life, I promise you something, you will not be disappointed. You will never, ever, 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 ever be disappointed when you give God. Some of us will go, well, you're talking about all in. I'm talking to the non-Christians here. I'm not even saying throw it all in. Give him that ounce. Give him that mo- that moment with him. Do what I did. Lord, I'm going to give you the next six months and call it weird or not. I said, God, if this doesn't work out in six months, I'm done. And 27 years later, I'm still following him. I, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I'm still following because I gave him a shot. I opened my heart to him for just a moment. I gave him an inch. I gave him an ounce of my life, of my attention, and he showed up big time and changed me. That's why I'm still here. But if you were here and we're going, nah, you'll never experience an encounter God. God, you, you, you know, well, you can't, you can't prove God. These are people that don't believe. You can't prove God. Okay. Try it for six months and you will not be disappointed. Number two, a word to the, this is the most dangerous per- person, the superficial Christians. Half, half, half. They're, 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 they're like, uh, I'm on the fence. I'm kind of going over here, over here. Judas Iscariot, I really believe he loved Jesus, but at best he was superficial. How can you go from loving Jesus, abandoning everything, to just throwing it all away for 30 pieces of silver? I don't care how much they pay me. Is my, is my eternity worth it for that much, just that influence of, over the religious people and the mob? No, it wouldn't be worth it. But my word for superficial is a dangerous one. We know that Judas regrets his decision because in Matthew 27, we're not going to read it, but he knows that he's wrong. He knew that he betrayed an innocent man. Judas knew enough about Jesus to know he's innocent, but he didn't know him enough to say, Lord, I give you all of my heart. So I'm talking to, I'm talking to superficial Christians. I'm not saying give them six months of your life. I'm saying it more important than that. Give him everything. Don't hold anything back. Trust me, when you ride the fence and you're superficial and, and you're kind of wishy-washy, you're kind of like, eh, whatever, you're going to be disappointed every single time. 
You're not going to be, you're going to be, man, this is so awesome. No, because it, it, it's like being on a boat and the winds are blowing you one way or the other. You're going to get seasick. You're not going to feel good. So when you're wishy-washy with God, you're going to be miserable. And it's not going to be worth it. But when you go and you make that decision to go all in, you're not, I mean, it, some people think it's think a sacrifice. You're not really sacrificing anything because what are you gaining? You're gaining heaven. You're gaining eternity. You're gaining it all. Like, really, I mean, what are we, what are we sacrificing? Binging on the weekends and drinking and being, and, and, you know, like puking? Like, oh, that sounds like a blast. Yeah, that really sounds like fun. No. Jesus is worth it all. Half-hearted Christianity is just plain dumb. How do I know? Because I wish I had a t-shirt that had, I could just go, I used to be that way. I still, at times, can live that kind of life where going gets tough. And I just go, eh, whatever. Now, my last one before we did, actually, there was a quote that's not in here. I want to read it. Pastor Tim Keller, I don't know if you ever heard of him. He just passed away in March. He was in New York. He's a great guy. But he did a test to know if you're all in with Jesus or you're just half-hearted. And I love this test. The test is this. In your life, is Jesus beautiful to you or is he just useful to you? I read that and I go, oh, is Jesus just a means to an end? Or when you see Jesus, is he beautiful to you? And I love, I love Pastor Tim Keller. He's in, he's in heaven now. But uh, that's a good test. When you look at, if you were to see Jesus physically, would you say, Jesus, you're, be- you're beautiful. You're worthy of my praise. You're worthy of my honor. You're worthy of my, my, my life. Or would you go, I love you, but can you do this? In other words, the way I put it is that, do, would you still worship Jesus with all, even if Jesus doesn't give you everything you want? The last one. A word, quick word before we close for faithful Christians. Christians who are all in. You're wholehearted. And my, my word comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. And, uh, I'll say a few words after that and we'll be done. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 8. I love this. This is the word to faithful Christians. You're in. You're in. Okay? All praise the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So here you go, Christians. Here's your word. Faithful Christians, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. So listen to what's saying. My joy is somewhere out there. I'm not, pastor, I'm, I feel bad. I don't, I'm not really experiencing God's joy right now. Look at here. It's ahead. Look ahead. Because you may endure, you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's, I love this. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, 
it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So what's my word for faithful Christians? Hold on. The, the seas are rough. Your captain, Jesus, is captaining the ship. And I like to think of Jesus with one of those captain hats. This ain't no Titanic. Okay? This ain't good. We're not going to sink. But the, this is not no cruise ship where you're like putting your feet up and drinking iced tea or coffee. This is going to, the, the going may get rough. You may have to endure. In fact, it says you must endure many trials. And this is not just for the people of that time. This is for all time. You are going to, you are going to go through some rough times, but you need to trust him. You need to remain strong in your faith. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Why? Because the only hope is hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this moment where we can praise you and we can thank you, Lord. And I pray that there would be all of us who would be faithful to you, God. You would help us to remain strong. But if you're, if we have some superficial Christians watching, I pray that you would help us to go all in. Or maybe there's some of us that just don't believe. For some reason, they've gone to the end of this sermon and they still don't believe. God, help them to make that choice, to just go forward with you just even an inch, to let you in even a little bit and their lives are going to be changed. God, I praise you and I thank you for the fruit that you're going to, that we're going to reap because of what you're doing, Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. No group on Wednesday because we have a few things on Wednesday. So you're, you're, read the Bible and pray on, the, on that Wednesday night, right? Okay. I'll be calling. No.